our podcast from the ARC Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation touching on news, current affairs, culture and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter Tara O'Connor, Managing Director of ARC, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe and work African affairs and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. You know, we're facing a fresh surge of uh, COVID cases um, which uh, risks threatening the traditional French August holidays. So everybody's a little bit nervous that a fresh uh, lockdown is coming. And we've also had seen nationwide protests against vaccination. But equally, we've had so many registrations to be vaccinated in France that the site registering them crashed. So it's a little bit of a mixed picture. Hmm. Well, over this centara, so much has happened since we last spoke. We've had the worst violence that South Africa has seen since the dawn of democracy, in which more than 300 people died, a significant cyber attack on the main port authority, Transnet, and news that South Africa's president was on a list of 14 global leaders identified as a potential surveillance target using an Israeli software suite called Pegasus. More on those stories in just a few minutes, but first let's take a look at some of the other stories that have dominated the news since our last podcast. South Africa's army says that it will deploy soldiers to help quell unrest sparked by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma. At least six people have been killed in the looting and protests. Violence broke out last week when Zuma began serving a 15-month sentence for contempt of court. A court in Tanzania has charged the leader of the main opposition party with terrorism-related offences following his arrest that drew international concern and criticism of the country's new president. The Taliban are advancing relentlessly across Afghanistan as the US carries out the final stages of withdrawing all its troops. With international forces largely gone, the Islamist group is taking more territory from a demoralized Afghan military. Watara and Bagpo meeting for the first time since they disputed an election a decade ago at Ivory Coast. We saw the country then descend into civil war. This meeting, some say, could be the start of a national reconciliation process in spite of the bad blood that still exists between the two men. It's been announced that the American gymnast Simone Biles has pulled out of another gymnastics event. She's withdrawn from the all-round competition in which she is defending champion. So just picking up on a few of those stories, as South Africa counts the cost of what some are describing as a violent insurrection, a possible spillover of ANC factional politics onto the streets, which began as a campaign of economic sabotage and then very quickly descended into unbridled looting. We've also seen one of the worst cyber attacks of its kind in South Africa because uh, it's targeted critical infrastructure. I'm talking, of course, about the cyber attack on the state-owned rail port and pipeline company called Transnet. It serves not only South Africa, but also freight destined for countries like Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Zambia and other countries in the neighbourhood. And the movement of containers in the port of Durban ground to a halt when Transnet computer systems were hacked. Now, experts are still trying to work out who the attackers were, whether it was a criminal attack, part of a campaign of sabotage, and actually whether there were outside actors, other countries that were involved. 
What makes it so complicated, Tara, is Transnet has so many contractors, it's difficult to join the dots together. It's also, as you know, it's been the focus of state capture or grand corruption. And so it makes it very, very complicated for investigators to figure out what's been going on. Well, exactly. Transnet, alongside the state utility, electricity utility, ESCOM, was really at the heart of state capture. And the attack, the attack really does come at a time of orchestrated instability in South Africa. There was definitely a, a con- this concerted effort not only to make the country ungovernable, but also to target infrastructure networks. And uh, we have covered it very clearly, you know, the um, incident by incident. And it shows that, uh, that not only were the arterial routes down to Durban that you talked about, but also the cell phone infrastructure was targeted um, and various other key bits of in- infrastructure. You know, this is South Africa's first big um, major internal crisis since the end of apartheid, I would, I would argue. And when you yeah. talk about external, um, external interference, I noticed that South Africa's uh, opposition, the Democratic Alliance, has started to ask questions about the whereabouts of the vice president, David Mabuza, and his continued absence. Mabuza, as you know, left South Africa on medical leave um, before the violence broke out, mm. uh, raising, and who replaces him in his critical role as, as the chief of the vaccine rollout is, is, obviously, um, is obviously on everyone's lips at the moment as this, uh, this story unfolds. Yeah, that's true. And and obviously, you know, people are joining the dots. You can imagine conspiracy theories abound. Uh, but I guess people are asking whether this was a cyber attack as part of that campaign of sabotage and, and whether it had any kind of Russian influence. Let's let's call it as it is. It's really far too too soon to be able to verify that. But it is certainly very interesting and it highlights the fact that, you know, South Africa, it may have legislation. It's got a new Cyber Crimes Act but it's got a heck of a long way to go to try and implement it and to have the actual infrastructure, if you like, to respond to a major uh, cyber attack like this one. Yes, I agree. It's totally way too early to speculate. Um, But there are a number of dots that are out there that definitely need to be investigated. And I would include in that investigation, um, you know, the Tea Party that happened last year (laughs) between uh, the populist... uh, uh, populist opposition at um, uh, reconciling with Jacob Zuma at Encandler. I'm very curious. Yes. Well, I mean, when we're talking about sort of uh, outside actors and countries doing bad things to other countries, allegedly, we've also seen another story that's interesting that emerged last week um, from Amnesty International about a piece of spyware called Pegasus developed by the Israeli firm, the NSO Group, which enables users to access someone else's phone without them knowing it and by extension gain access to their contacts, messages, location, as well as their microphone and camera and effectively turn them into spying devices. Why is it relevant to South Africa? Well, it turns out that Rwanda may well, and I do say may well have been surveying or at least planning to survey the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, using precisely this software. What's more, I've gone back over some of the research that was done on the company, which says it's only supplying countries with this spyware with good human rights records to do things like 
suss out criminal gangs. And obviously, organised transnational crime is a huge issue uh, in this part of the world. And therefore, in certain circumstances, this kind of software may well be legitimate. But, you know, the research was quite interesting because what it highlighted was that, you know, this spyware, this particular piece of spyware is used by governments in Kenya, in Togo, in Uganda, in Ivory Coast, in Equatorial Guinea to spy on each other as well. I mean, it reminds me of some of the stories we were seeing coming out of Europe, some of them um, which were dispelled rather quickly. Do you remember the story about Angela Merkel um, being spied on uh, by the Brits, which actually turned out to not to be true, but it was one of those stories that came out from the, the Snowden leaks. And it seems like, you know, increasingly uh, African countries are being dragged into the fray as well. And also Morocco um, was apparently, has also got this software and was perhaps exactly. targeting... Uh, President Emmanuel Macron, which is uh, quite a turn up for the books. And apparently all these leaders have changed their phone (laughs) phones uh, recently. So they're giving it a little bit of credence. Yeah, but the diplomatic fallouts there, I mean, I imagine in the past week, it's been some fairly difficult conversations between sort of the South African uh, government and and possibly the uh, Rwandan mission here uh, in Pretoria. Um, given the fact that over the past few years there's been fairly frosty relations because of um, a assassination of a former ally turned political foe of Paul Kagame, who was actually in exile here in South Africa. So yes, watch and, this space. and a very worrying time for uh, you know for campaigners, uh, political campaigners, uh, for people who are journalists as well to know that they are perhaps being spied on um, uh, by by governments, government actors that are hostile to them for protecting democracy. It's a very worrying trend and uh, the international community, one hopes, will take sharp action to stop it. But from my side, Karen, a couple of very interesting pieces of anti-corruption news. Mm. First, the UK has followed the US and has introduced targeted sanctions against a key business ally of Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Mnangagwa. Kuda Tagwirai has become Zimbabwe's number one oligarch and the sanctions uh, are linked to his uh, very corrupt uh, dealings with ZANU-PF government. In fact, he's a key supporter and financer of the, of the ZANU-PF government. And then there's a second piece of important news is that the US under, the US under Joe Biden has aligned anti-corruption enforcement to national security. He made combating corruption a core U.S. national security interest and has directed all departments and agencies to make recommendations on how to bolster the U.S. government's ability to combat corruption. Adding it to national security really gives anti-corruption campaigns way more importance and it's very important for companies to take note of this. Um, you know, it will be strongly felt amongst the kleptocratic regimes that uh, that are in the neighbourhood that we cover, uh, and particularly where where administrations and individuals have become so corrupt that as to erode democratic governance. And I think, uh, you know, I think where companies have associations with the people that we call politically exposed people they will now become much greater targets for U.S. enforcement actions outside of the U.S. And so if deals are done in dollars, if dirty deals are done in dollars, that gives the U.S. government jurisdiction on these issues. Absolutely. Thanks, Tara. 
You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. The Ark Insider has come out onto the road this week in order to interview our guest. Moiponi Mafane is formerly the political editor of the Sowetan newspaper. She changed direction in 2018 to establish a digital business portal aimed at showcasing small businesses in South Africa called Vutivi Business News. Um, it's lovely to meet you. Good afternoon, ladies. You've got me speaking to you here, <laughs> and you've got Tara, obviously, uh, many, many miles away. Oh, exactly. How is London? Um, well, actually, I'm in France at the moment, Moipane, and it's um, it's lovely and warm here. going to talk a little bit about the impact of the violence recently on small businesses in South Africa. But before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about your web portal? What was the reason for, for establishing that? As I was a political editor for Sowetan, I discovered that um, most newspapers, they focus in big um big business. They don't focus on small businesses. So I was um, intending to open a newspaper, but at the same time, even before I left um, uh, the Sowetan, which was my last formal employment, the newspapers were not really doing well. So COVID hit us. Then when it hit us, I changed the model. And then I said, okay, I'm going to do business, uh, business news, which is what I wanted to do in a newspaper. And reason being to say, if politicians, if government, if everyone in big business says small business can build the economy, why don't we have a, a, a media that outlet that is dedicated to uh, small businesses? If you were to look at South African companies from Old Mutual to Standard Bank to this and that, they all have in their um, enterprise development uh, programs, they've got some money that goes um, to small business. So that people who don't know South Africa and they don't necessarily know the landscape here, Mm. it's largely dominated by big corporates rather than, say, the smaller businesses that you might see in the rest of the continent. We really don't go out to cover what is it uh, that a small business is, is, is offering and what is it that people that are in that sector, what are they doing? We only talk about them when we talk about problems. But I am celebrating small business. I am saying I want my portal to be a home if you want information for small business. My, the name of my company is uh, Votivi Business News. Votivi means knowledge. Moipani, we're talking at a really difficult time, actually, in South Africa. Um, just over a week ago, we saw some of the most shocking violence since the dawn of democracy here, mm. particularly in KwaZulu-Natal and in Gauteng. That's the province where... Johannesburg and Pretoria are located and where I'm speaking to you from now. What impact did that violence that some people are calling an insurrection, targeted violence, what impact did that have on the small business community here? You know, for me, it was devastating for for small business, although they also looted um, big business, like I was saying, that uh, in KZN, in KwaZulu-Natal, where I think it 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 is the most heat, um, goods from overseas all over the world, they arrive in KwaZulu-Natal. So you find that big retail uh, stores, they have their port, their, their storage yeah. where they keep uh, the goods before they can tra- be transported uh, uh, countrywide where they have uh, shops. Because they come in through the port of they Durban, come, many yeah, of them. Yes, yeah. yes. Now, in looting, 
those uh, storages and in looting shops. Some of the small businesses in the townships or anywhere, they buy from a big retail like your macro, mm -hmm. they get, um, or, uh, or cash and carry, they buy what they go to sell in the township from a, a, a big um, retail uh, of macros and so on mm -hmm. and so on. So the value chain in terms of um, the goods coming in to go where uh, someone with small business will buy, it has totally been destabilized and in the process people lost jobs. Mm -hmm. So the impact is not only on small business, I think the impact has the impact will feel the impact for a long, long, long time. There are two things that you mentioned there. One is that the small and micro business sector is actually amongst the most consistent job creators in South Africa. Isn't that so? And how does that work? And you know, what's going to happen with these, with the, you know, the disruption that you described to the supply chain? What's going to happen to those jobs? I think the hope will be um, the money that government has set aside. These companies will be able to, to rebuild uh, and then uh, people can uh, be employed. You must remember that... Um, not everyone can run a company. Not everyone can be an editor. So people who have lost their jobs, some of them, they may be at home stranded. They do not know what they are going to do. For instance, in Soweto, um, they bent two malls. And uh, one mall said, the guys, the owner said, I won't be able to rebuild this. And the challenge also, the big challenge is small business, unlike big business, they are not insured. They can't afford insurance. Mm -hmm. Hence, they have not even registered their people with the labor department to say how many people do we have. That is why the news are bad for what happened is bad for small business. So for them to recover, I pray that some of them have been registered so that they can go and claim from government. If you are not compliant, you're not paying tax, paying tax you are done. Otherwise, you can start again. It depends where the person was in his business. It depends in terms of how that person was boxing. If you're not boxing smart, you were just running for eating from day to for every day, then you are. So we were wondering about this. Tara and I were having a chat about this earlier. Is whether one of the unintended consequences mm. of the violence and of course COVID before which had hit mm. so many small businesses whether one of the unintended consequences is actually to motivate and push smaller businesses in the informal sector to join the formal sector by registering for tax by uh, being compliant in various other ways in order to have some protection that when you know things go bad, things go south, they may possibly get some compensation. I hear you, but I think also we need to look at our education system, which is uh, for me very, very important because the fact that people are not registered is because they think I register, I'll have to pay tax. Mm -hmm. I'm registered, I'm compliant, but taxman looks at my account and he says, rather let me compensate this person and give her back uh, something. But the challenge that we have here at home, I think information is, uh, pe people do not have information. And with that, that's what leads to people not being able to register. They see even registering as something where you have to pay a lot of money, mm -hmm. you have to do this and that. So I think our um, government somewhere, somehow, they need to be able to communicate 
talk to people in our 11 official languages. We've got radio stations at SABC where you can just have That's a the broadcasting corporation. Uh, yes, yeah. Where you have a South African broadcasting uh, a, a, a broadcasting corporation which is uh, state owned. Um you, you where you just run for a month to say we are we want to talk to everyone who's got a small business who is contributing to say come forward we will help you. How the government had that and they were calling it uh like um be former formalize your, your mm -hmm. business. I don't know whether they managed to read people. They were going into the townships to talk to them to say, register because these are the benefits. But I don't know how far, in fact, I think it's an idea for a student. I don't know how far they went. In my journalism days, I remember talking to young South Africans. Some of them were educated, some of them were not South Africans, about why is it, say, the Malawians, the Zimbabweans, uh, the Somalis, they're the ones that are running a lot of the small businesses in the townships. Why isn't that something that's attractive to you? And a lot of them say we want to be entrepreneurs because of what they see on the TV and what they oh, see. Yes, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about trying to crack that mindset, if you like. You know, um, it's difficult, uh, I must tell you, because what you're talking about, about entrepreneurs, um, you get a black family and uh, a brother or a sister or someone becomes a minister or something. Money starts flowing in. So everybody believes in easy come. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that, uh, in most cases, people believe in easy come and they don't understand that they have to work uh, very hard. I think all these things is about education. Mm -hmm. It's about our government talking to people. Mm -hmm. There is so much that government talks about. There is so much that government offers, but people do not have uh, access. You can have 10 offices of maybe National Youth Development Agency uh, in all the nine provinces, but are they accessible? How do you, we are such an inequal, inequality uh, country, we are not equal, because someone who is in the villages and myself here, we live a, like a total, uh, it's like we are in two different uh, countries. A simple thing, you go into the countryside, you find that the vaccine, vaccinations with centers it's only one and it's saving so many people. A friend of mine was in the free state where she comes from. She said to me, but I have to come back to Houghton because Houghton, there are many mm -hmm. centers. But where I am, there's only one place and it gets full every day and nobody, no attention, nobody comes here, nobody talks to us. We don't know if I was not educated, if I was not enlightened, maybe I was even not going to uh, vaccinate. Final question. I mean, one of the things that's coming across very much from what you, what you say is that actually small and medium-sized uh, enterprises and micro-enterprises are largely invisible. I mean, your website is one thing. You've talked about, um, about how government needs to focus on this, but what else can be done to improve the visibility and stability and growth of SME and micro-businesses? I think people need to, to, form, to formalize themselves. We've got um, NAFCOC, National Federation. It's an organization for spaza shop. What do you find we call spaza shops and so on? I these, think these are like the kiosks, the small shops that you find yes, in, the yes. in the township. Yes. Yes. I think yes. they need to formalize themselves. And I'll give you a, an example that I made earlier. You go into the townships, there are penal beaters every corner. I still, it still baffles me why is that um, those people that are in, 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 in the townships, they still 
use same equipment when it rains they don't work because there is no shelter um when it's too hot the person can work or can work if he can stand the heat why is that sector not um formalized it's something that um leaders our leaders they come from different townships they come from different villages mm. they know how people live don't tell me when you get into office you forget that in my area there there are lots of uh, mango trees and people can make archer mm. why not say can i champion a, a one project for my people i was born in lesotho although i'm naturalized here in mm. south africa in Lesotho, you elect a leader as much as we may say they are corrupt and so on. First thing that the person do, they look after their people in the villages. That's your constituency. Yeah. Those are the people that put you into, into power. So with us, we move to the suburbs. We forget that, hey, there's a gogo there that used to sell maguinya. Mm -hmm. At some point, uh, when I was still with the Sowetan, we used to have what we call dialogues. Then one was about the liquor trading and licenses and they wanted to close um the liquor shops yeah. in the townships what you call shibins yeah, where we just exactly. go drink yes. and dance on the tables best, so <laughs> best entertainment in south africa i do recommend it <laughs> so one boy stood up and said yes i know alcohol is bad but i'm who i am today because my family sold alcohol I'm from Vets University, I'm a graduate, I'm an accountant. Instead of closing this down, can we find a way of how we solve the problem that government thinks is a problem? Let's come up with a solution. We need to retain money in areas where people live. Money can't leave an area and you expect that the area will develop. You talked about champions, and I. You talked about champions, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's about leadership, isn't it? It's about having good role models and exactly. being able to show exactly. what's possible. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. It's yes, it's about as leadership. Well as giving back. Not even giving back. You can give people direction. You can um, yes. you, you you can talk to them about instead of going to buy this zozo. Um, what's in, this zozo? Yeah. What turn your head and you see it? What do you call that? The, the wooden, wooden, yeah, the, oh, wooden, the wooden, the wooden Wendy house. Like the a, Wendy house, yeah, yeah. they're perfect. There is English. My <laughs> suit is not so good, so no, no. <laughs> the Wendy house, you can say in the township, we've got people who can build. Why skill them yeah. so that we know that in a particular area we get? In fact, the people from Mozambique, most of them are handy people. They are the ones that um, uh, do what. Uh, build mm -hmm. and and because they are i think they say their education system is more channeled in skills mm -hmm. it's almost like the apprenticeship schemes exactly. that we see yes yes so i think in south africa we also need something like that on a pattern shot i believe that we need future kids that walk around with business plans not cvs then we will build yes. a nation that will understand the economy we will build a nation that will when they have to loot they will know how much does this phone that I am taking or a TV, how is it going to contribute to the economy if somebody buys it? Lopane, it's a great way to stop. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you very much, Moipane. What lovely, uh, great insights that you've given to us today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. 
If you're interested, Tara's team at ARC produces reports on 22 countries across Africa. You can subscribe to these by contacting info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.